1 Corinthians chapter 6. Last week we were in 1 Corinthians 5, and uh, we looked at a topic of uh, an instance of healthy division within the church, which sounds strange, but the Bible does have categories for these things. This week, we're going to kind of continue, uh, you'll see in just a moment, we're going to kind of continue a similar idea, though it's a different application. But before we do that, I want to talk to you briefly about one of the most dangerous environments known to man. Most of you will be familiar with this. Those of you that are not, praise the Lord. You have an experience that many of us do not have. Here's what this dangerous environment is that we are all, all too familiar with. It's called Family Game Night. How many of you have almost, I'm not going to ask you to confess, I guess, in public, but almost done something bad over a game of Monopoly? Many hands, a few, right? Someone the other day said, we got Monopoly and we got to play. And then we stopped because we got mad at each other. Like that? Sounds about right. That's exactly right. Family game night, the point is simple. The intent is to grow together as a family. Hey, somebody pick a game. Let's play a game together. Okay, you pick a game, you start playing. But then something happens you know, someone rolled the dice, and it hit the board, but it was kind of on its edge, half on the board and half off. And there's two faces kind of showing. And one of the faces gives them a six, and then they're going to land on this space, and then they're going to have the game. That would be over. But then this other one, it's, it's, it's a four. And I could really benefit if they got the four. And then that temptation hits. That's the edge of the board. Reroll that. Even though we know, well, one of the faces is kind of more shy. And then we start getting this argument. It's like, well, but I, that's, you only said that because this, if it had been something. And then before you know it, it's blowing up. And you get through that conflict, and then the rules resolve. And we say, well, remember, we have a house rule this. Okay, fine. You get done. And at the end of the day, everyone's mad at each other. And you finish the game, and you're like, <laughs> I got it my way. And you're looking around, and everyone's upset. And you're like, we all lost. We all lost. <laughs> the point of this was to draw together as a family, and in our pursuit of trying to accomplish the just action in game night, we have all lost. The whole mood is ruined, and now you all hate each other. Family game night. It's fantastic. We love it at our house. We do play a lot of games together, but it is a struggle. Here's how it relates to what we're going to talk about this morning. Our main idea this morning, sometimes following Jesus means suffering wrong in order to do what's right. Sometimes following Jesus means suffering wrong in order to do what's right. So as we move into chapter 6, remember Paul has already addressed division, unhealthy division in the church in the first few chapters here. We move into chapter 5, he starts to address healthy division. One instance that we looked at is called corrective church discipline. That's the separation from those in, in verse 11 of chapter 5 who bear the name of brother but are guilty of outward, significant, unrepentant sin. So the Corinthians are revealing, though they think they're wise, they're revealing their immaturity because they're dividing over preferential things related to their teachers, but then they're staying together over these heinous acts of sin that they should be fleeing from. So now in chapter 6, Paul begins to address the third issue lawsuits among believers. And though this is a different issue, I want to propose to you that it's the exact same, it stems from the exact same problem that we see in chapter 5. And I believe, it's hard to say for sure, 
I believe that Paul wants us to view chapter 6 this way. Chapter 5 addresses immorality, sexual immorality within the church. Chapter 6 goes to lawsuits, but then towards the end of chapter 6, he goes back to this sexual immorality again, almost like bookends. I believe that he wants us to view this chapter 6, the first half especially, as part of a larger argument, and I'll show you that in just a moment. Before we dive into it, I'd like to read this passage together. So hopefully you're at 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I'm going to invite everyone to stand together for the reading of God's holy word. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, starting in verse 1. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more, then, matters pertaining to this life? So, if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, and you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, you who inspired every word in the Scriptures, the author of the written word and the author of life, would you speak life into us through your word this morning? Cause us to see through the written word a better picture of the living word, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we ask all these things. Amen. Thank you, church. You can be seated. So as we start chapter 6 here, Paul opens up with several rhetorical questions. I want to point out, again, kind of remind you, I don't think that this is, this is a different application, a different topic, but I don't think that it's a completely, entirely different issue. If you think about the issue last week, the Corinthians are not pursuing holiness. They're not looking different than their surrounding culture. Those areas that are, that are describing them that look like the culture, they're refusing to acknowledge and mourn over. Instead, they're arrogant about it. And then what happens as a result is they end up getting worse than the culture. This isn't even tolerated among pagans, but you are doing it and you're arrogant about it. They are communicating in their actions something that's incompatible with the Christian faith. The message of the gospel is that those who trust Christ and turn to him from sin will be saved from it. 
This doesn't just mean the punishment of sin, though that's how we treat it sometimes. We are saved from the power of sin. Scripture describes us that we used to be a slave to sin, but now we are a slave to righteousness. In the same way that I couldn't help but sin in my prior life, before Christ, now as a new creation, I can't help but pursue righteousness. And when I don't, I feel this overwhelming conviction that's telling me something is not right. What this means is that our highest aim in life is to submit to Jesus wholly and fully in all areas of our life. Ephesians 6, 5 through 6 describes us as being bond servants, or other translations say slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Well, the Corinthians were not doing this. That's what we see in chapter 5. So Paul gives this instruction In the command to be holy, they are to remove this leaven so that they may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. Essentially, be holy. So one manifestation of their problem is unaddressed sin in the church. It should be addressed if it's outward, significant, unrepentant. This week, we see another manifestation. And the reason I think Paul wants us to view these separate issues as similar is because the similarities in the passages. If you recall last week, and you can kind of skim through this week, I want to point out some similarities that I noticed. In both passages, he uses rhetorical questions to make his point. In both passages, the topic of judgment or judging comes up. In both passages, there's a comparison between the saints and those of the world or the unrighteous. In both passages, Paul implies that they should be ashamed. How is it that this is happening? In both passages, there's a list of sins given at the end of the issue. In both passages, there's this family imagery between Christians as being brothers, those who bear the name of brother, and then those who are brothers against brother going to legal dispute with one another in front of the world. The Corinthians are not doing the will of God from the heart, and it's manifesting itself in a couple of different ways. First, in the way that they do not address sin, and then next, in the way that they are handling these conflicts and disputes between one another. So now in our passage today, as we start with these rhetorical questions in the first four verses here, When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? If the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? In all these questions, Paul's not looking for an answer. It's rhetorical. He's making a statement with it. In total, in these 11 verses, there are nine rhetorical questions that he asks. That means most of what he's talking about here should be self-explanatory. Why do we use rhetorical questions? It's because the answer is obvious, and we're drawing from our sarcastic tendencies to make a point. I shouldn't have to defend this proposition. It should be obvious. Do you really think is what he's asking? It's not a complex issue, yet it's still present. Well, what is the issue? We see it in verse 1. When one of you has a grievance against another. The Greek word here is pragma, which is a concern or a matter, usually that needs discussion for resolution. 
and a lot of times used in a legal sense. And it's used as opposed to another word that usually refers to a criminal charge. So this grievance refers to like a civil case, to kind of use our terminology, whereas some of these other terms would apply to criminal cases. So what Paul is talking about here is not that if there is ever any concern with the law, do not go before the state. Handle it among yourselves. Has someone been murdered? Don't take it to the state. That's too embarrassing. Work it out among yourselves. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying every issue of the law ought to come before the church. Rather, what he's saying is, if there is a conflict between one another, that you don't have to go and sort it out in court, but you're choosing to, I'm telling you don't. Work it out between one another in the church. If you can't come to agreement... Find someone else in the church to help you. A couple of passages that might help you in understanding this, I'll give them to you and you can look at them later for further study, would be Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 7. Here Paul talks about submitting to governing authorities. God has established these institutions, and he's done it for a reason. There's a reason we have a government. Whether or not they make all the right decisions all the time is irrelevant. The state handles issues of the state, and that is a good, godly thing. So that's Romans 13, 1 through 7. We see Paul do this in Acts chapter 25. Paul goes to the Roman tribunal in submission to submitting to governing authorities and law. He utilized the public courts. So it's not all legal issues that we are to avoid here. But it is these civil issues between one another and these disagreements a little bit further in verse 1, he says, Does he dare go to law before the unrighteous? In chapter 5, Paul says, It's actually reported that this immorality is happening. It's a way of emphasizing the situation. I can't believe I'm hearing this, but this is what's happening. Well, he's doing the same thing here in chapter 6. Do you dare go to law before the unrighteous? You have this disagreement and you can't sort it out? You claim to be so wise, but now you can't find someone wise enough to handle this issue? The implication is clear. This should not be happening. Why? Paul makes his argument in the next several questions. We've talked about this before, using an a fortiori argument. That's a fancy way of saying, arguing from the greater to the lesser. Jesus does this all the time. The Bible is full of these. And the, the idea is, is that if I can lift 50 pounds, the greater, well, surely I can lift 20 pounds. It doesn't make sense for someone to say, I couldn't pick that up, but we just saw him hauling this furniture over here. You can pick it up because I saw you do this. That's the idea here. So Paul is saying, I know that you're competent for these things. And he gives two examples of the greater. Number one, he says that saints will one day judge the world. And number two, saints will one day judge angels. So again, calling back to last week, there's this idea that's popular in Christianity that Christians are to never judge. That is an unbiblical notion. In Matthew chapter 7, when he says, do not judge lest ye be judged, he's not condemning all judgment or else Paul is being unbiblical and recording it in the Bible. But we see commands here. 
Christians will one day judge. Are you not competent to judge among yourselves with these issues? So it's a specific type of judgment that's forbidden, this judgment against others as though we are the final judge. Or this judgment against others that refuses to acknowledge self. That is the judging that is being condemned. But here we see you are going to judge the world one day and you are going to judge the angels one day. So certainly you can judge among yourselves in these trivial issues. Surely you can figure out what's going on here. If you want more passages for study on this, Revelation chapter 3 verse 21 is a good passage where we see the saints being promised to sit on the throne with Christ. And in Daniel chapter 7, verse 22, we see that judgment will be given to the saints. Revelation 3, 21, Daniel 7, 22, and I'm going to give you one more. Matthew 19, 28. I thought y'all would want to be out of here before lunch today, so I'm not going to go to all these. Matthew 19, 28, Jesus tells the twelve apostles that there will be 12 special thrones from which they will judge the 12 tribes of Israel. So we don't get a lot more information other than those passages, but Paul's point remains the same. Well, then he talks about how we're going to judge angels, and I'll tell you, we have even less information about that in the scriptures. All we can really do is speculate. If I had to guess, I think it might relate to the fallen angels, but I'm really not certain because the Bible doesn't give us that. Another commentator says that he thinks that it means that we will have a level of authority over angels once we get to heaven. Who's to say? But Paul's point still stands. Paul's point is clear. If you're going to do this great judgment, you can do lesser judgment between you. You are not incompetent for these things. Therefore, you should be handling it rather than taking it before the public courts in front of the non-believers. So then we get to verse 5. Paul says, I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? Paul circles all the way back around to the topic of wisdom again. The Corinthians thought themselves to be so wise. Let me tell you how wise I am. This teacher is really the best teacher. This is the right way of doing it. This is how wise I am. But then he says, you're ignoring sin in the church, and you have conflict between one another, and you're airing it out to the public? That's not wisdom. If you think you're wise, you should have found someone who can judge the matter, but you haven't. The issue is not one of intellect. It's a deeper problem, stemming back to sinful motives. More than likely, it's hard to say for sure, more than likely, the root here of the sin is either greed or pride. There's a conflict between me and my brother. You know, I loaned my lawnmower to him, and he had it out in his yard, and he was cutting down a tree and didn't do it right, and the tree fell on the mower, and now I'm out of mower. And this guy owes me a mower, right? Yeah. <laughs> he owes me a mower. And then this guy says, well, no, now, wait a minute. Look, I wasn't, I, I, I shouldn't be responsible because I, I told you not to park the mower there that I was cutting down a tree. And then you said it'll be okay. I don't owe you a mower. Uh-oh. We got a situation now. You see how this might get out of hand. Well, I am owed that mower, and I will get it. I will see you in court. See you there, buddy. Greed. 
or it could be a pride issue. It could be a pride issue that, well, I told you this was going to happen. I'm sorry. No, I'm right. You're responsible. Bro, I'm not. Look, sorry. I mean, you're just going to have to work it out. Walk away. Uh, I won't be talked to like that. You can see how these roots creep up within us, and we think justice needs to be served. And we think our desire for justice is so righteous in that moment, but it's really not, is it? So they go to court. And here's the worst part about this. The church's testimony is flushed down the drain when this happens. Just like last week with this unaddressed sin in the church, it ruins the church's witness. The church says, we are a redeemed family known for forgiveness and mercy and grace, except when you destroy my mower. The world laughs at this kind of stuff. They laugh at the type of disagreements that divide our churches. And they say, see, that's why I don't like the church right there. It ruins the church's witness. Verse 6, he says, Brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. When two believers take one another to court in front of a watching world, it's not that one wins and one loses. They both lose. It's already a defeat. I don't care what the final verdict is, you lost. You lost when you said, I'll see you in court. That's what he's saying here. Both parties lose because the church's message is being tarnished and believers, according to their new natures, are slaves of Christ who exist to do God's will from the heart. Ephesians 6. Our highest aim should be that Christ is honored and glorified, not that I am honored and pleased and happy. So to make this point, Paul says something that, if you're not already shocked, will be especially shocking. Verse 7, why not rather suffer wrong? This is rhetorical. He doesn't want you to give an answer. Why not rather be defrauded? Again, Paul doesn't want you to answer that question. Here's what he's saying. If the options are go to court or B, get taken advantage of for the sake of the gospel, I'll tell you the answer is clear. It's B. That's what he's saying. Why? Because you are family. When I have conflict with Stacy, I don't tell her I'm going to see you in court. Or else we wouldn't be married right now. <laughs> I'd be in trouble. The fact that we're still married is evidence that I have not done that yet. I will never do that because I love you. A lot. We'll never do that. We wouldn't do that, would we? No, we don't do that. Why? It's family. Well, these people aren't my family. Then you don't know the gospel. We are family. We are more family than my blood relation to family that doesn't know Jesus. We are family. 
speaking of marriage, we have the chance to practice this on a regular basis in our marriages. You and your spouse are in a sharp disagreement. You said one thing. Your spouse says that you said something else, but they don't know that they're wrong because you remember. They think that you're wrong, but you know that you're not wrong. And you know that they're wrong, and they just don't know that they're wrong. Bless them. And you really want to show them that they're wrong and you're right. So what do you do? You make that great mistake. Let me show you. You pull out your cell phone and start going through your text messages. Guess what? You've both already lost. You both already lost. You may win that argument, but husbands especially, you know, you can win an argument and still lose. Right? Wives, you can win an argument and still lose. Your goal should be to suffer loss in that moment. I will let my spouse think that they're right, even though I'm still pretty sure I'm right. But I will let that go because this is not worth that disagreement. My relationship is so much more than this petty argument. And that's what we see here in the church. Why are we willing to swallow our pride for our spouses? Because we're family. And this is how it should be here. We must prioritize our relationships over our rights. I know your American blood is boiling. I feel it within myself as well, but we cannot deny the truth of God's word here. Paul frequently speaks in the scriptures about giving up certain rights that he had in order to serve others in the church. We ought to be willing and ready to do the same thing. In verses 9 through 11, and then we're going to go back and give some general points that I've observed here. In verses 9 through 11, Paul finishes by describing what, why saints need to handle their own disputes before going to the world to have it handled. And he does this by contrasting the world with believers. Those who are of the world act like the world. Sexual immorality, idolatry, adultery, homosexuality, thievery, greed, intoxication, slander, cheating. These values influence how the world makes judgments. It does it to us too, by the way, as believers, but we have something within us that counteracts that influence called the Holy Spirit. He dwells within us, and he sees our fleshly desires, and he says, no, you won't be overcome with this type of thinking. Let me use the word that you read this week to shape the way that you think about this conflict. The world doesn't have that. As good of a judge as the world might be, they are influenced by these ungodly desires. They drive them. Are these the type of people that you want handling conflict between believers? Because they're not going to tell you to do what Paul's telling you to do here. Paul's telling you, be defrauded. Take the hit. It's worth it. The world is not going to tell you that. They're going to, no, well, technically, by law, this is what's required. Ha! Told you. You both lost. Don't do that. We believers, we were like those things. Look at that phrase there in verse 11. This is so easy to look over, 
But these are five, no six, I can't count, powerful words. And such were some of you. Lest you get a big head and think, yeah, I'm not like the world. You were. The only reason you're not now is because you've been forgiven. Look what's happened. You were washed. The implication is that you didn't wash yourself. Someone else washed you. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You were only different because someone else did something for you that you could not do for yourself. You don't deserve it. You can't earn it. What makes us qualified or competent to handle these conflicts, these internal conflicts, is not some sort of moral superiority. It's our identity as a forgiven people that shapes us into forgiving people. But as long as we air our public disputes in front of the world, we're showing the world that we're not really any different than they are. The question that this begs is, is this because you're not really a forgiven people? So with all of that being said, I want to go back now and give three general observations that this whole passage kind of highlights for us. Three general principles related to conflict in the church. Number one, conflict between believers should be resolved among believers. Conflict between believers should be resolved among believers. Conflict is inevitable. You want to know why? We're still sinful people. I had the Holy Spirit, I'm forgiven, I'm being sanctified, but there is still remnants of the flesh within me. So you know what's going to happen? You're going to have conflict. Guess what? In your marriage, you're going to have conflict. You know why? Because you're both sinful people. It's okay to say that about my spouse because it's true of me too. We are both sinful people. We're going to have conflict. We won't agree on everything. We won't always argue the way that we're supposed to argue and maintaining gentleness and being considerate of one another. We're going to be tempted the same way that others are. So conflict is inevitable. We're going to have it. There will be some times when the conflict is so bad between two parties, even in the same church, that you just can't see a way forward. So Paul's instruction here is, do not take that outside of the church. Surely there is someone among you who is wise enough to help situate this situation. Surely there's someone that can help you work it out. Find a third party. Say, we have a situation. Maybe it's a group of people if it's a severe enough situation. We have a situation and we can't agree on a way forward. We need biblical wisdom on this. How do you think we should handle this? And be ready to listen to an opinion that's different than yours, probably. Because that third party may say, well, actually, you know, this is tough. Uh, really, I think the cost should probably be split 50-50. Well, that's not fair. Well, that's not fair. What, you asked you ask for my advice. I mean, that's what I'm telling you. I'm going to court anyway. You need to learn to handle this conflict among yourselves for the sake of the gospel message. We are competent for these things. Now, for this to work requires humility and sacrifice. Sometimes we might hear an opinion that we don't want. Or we might be tempted to think, well, if I do that, the other person comes out ahead, and that's not fair. According to today's passage, it's better to be defrauded and to be done with the conflict. 
when you've got conflict, don't let it get worse and worse. Deal with it, and if you can't do it alone, find some others to help settle the matter. That's one general principle we can take from today's passage. Number two, the gospel's reputation is far more important than your own good. The gospel's reputation is far more important than your own good. Are you willing to suffer if it helps the gospel appear as glorious as it actually is? Now, at some point, someone might ask, yes, but isn't God a God of justice? The gospel isn't anti-justice. You're saying that justice shouldn't be served so that the gospel looks good? Quick reminder, we're not talking about criminal cases here. We're talking about these civil disputes. And in light of that, I will say this. The gospel is about justice, but do you know what the justice of the gospel required? For Jesus Christ to suffer unjustly. Think about this for just a minute. The justice of the gospel is that I as a sinner cannot be forgiven because I owe a debt. So justice says that debt needs to be paid in full. So Jesus comes and pays my debt, so now my debt is technically paid so I can be forgiven. God can't just say, I just forgive everybody, done. He's got to pay for that debt in order for justice to be served. That's the justice part of the gospel. However, the injustice is that a sinless man suffered when he did nothing wrong. And he did it so that sinful men might be better off for it. By our definition of justice, guess what? That's not fair. It's justice, but it's not justice. How does this happen? How does this make sense? Fair would have been, you pay your own sin debt. But God doesn't do that to us, does he? He forgives us our debt. Jesus leaves us an example. It is good to suffer loss for the good of another. Our relationships communicate the gospel. The gospel's reputation in our relationships is more important than our own good in that moment. When the world sees us handling conflicts publicly in court or airing them out for everyone, justice may technically be served, but it comes at the expense of your witness. It's a high price to pay. Number three, we can forgive the debts of others because our debt has been forgiven. The only reason that we can suffer wrong for others is because Jesus has done that for us first. The only reason we can show mercy and grace is because we've been shown mercy and grace first. If you've been forgiven by Jesus and shown mercy and grace by Jesus, forgive others and show mercy and grace. And I don't mean the word forgive in the I'm sorry I forgive you type of way, though we should do that. I mean it in the you don't owe me anything, I'm going to eat the cost personally type of forgiveness. When you loan a tool to someone and they broke it or they lost it, and I'm, I'm going to pay you back, I promise. No, you're not. 
No, really, it's gonna, it's, I, I know it's expensive and I don't. Brother, you're not. It's okay. That will do a lot more for your relationship and the gospel than demanding for these things back. And you may think, well, Garrett, that's not right. I mean, what, what the justice? And that exposes the greed within us. I forgive you. You don't owe me for that. I'll eat the cost. The type of mercy that says, I don't want you to get what you deserve. Because I know your financial situation, you are not replacing that. The type of grace that says, I want you to have something even if you don't deserve it. To flip the equation, the one with the tool that says, you know what, I'm going to do this for somebody else. You know what, I'm going to seek the good of someone else who doesn't deserve it. Maybe you don't think that you could ever do something like this. Jesus did it for you. And once you understand and embrace and trust that truth, you'll find that not only is this possible, but you can actually be filled with joy as you imitate Jesus in this way and suffer wrong for the good of others and of the gospel. It's what you were designed to do. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you have washed us and sanctified us and justified us. We were once lost in the deception of our sin, groping around for some source of hope and light in the midst of a dark world, and you stepped down and redeemed us. You revealed yourself to us. You forgave us. And you were making us into a new creation. But Lord, our flesh still desires some of these old patterns that we've developed over the years. Would you break these within us and mold us into the image of your Son? Make us to look like a different people than the rest of the world. Who are willing to suffer the loss of finances or even our pride. If it will be for the good of our relationship with our family. That they may be better for it. And that you may be honored for it. Lord, give us discernment and give us courage to face our conflicts to not let them go unresolved. Lord, if there's a soul in this room that does not know of your forgiveness in this way, I pray that you would open their eyes to their sin, the debt that they owe you, the reality of a future day of judgment, and the hope of forgiveness that is offered through you. I pray that you would turn them from their life of sin that they might cling to you in faith and be saved. Lord, we ask all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.